Let's turn now, friends, to the second portion we read in John's Gospel, <clears throat> chapter 12. And, uh, consider for a little this morning the um, anointing of Jesus by Mary. Now, this amazing sin, although on the one hand may seem somewhat familiar to us, is not without its difficulties. We have a similar record in Matthew, as we read, and also in the Gospel of Mark. And at the very least, it raises the question for us how many times was Jesus anointed those last days of his life? The record in Matthew and Mark and John seems very similar. Mark, for his part, made no attempt at dating the event. But Matthew did, and so did John here. And that is where the difficulty arises. Because Matthew, as we read in chapter 26, told us after two days is the feast of the Passover, implying that that was when um, the anointing took place. Here, you will notice, John claims, verse 1, six days before the Passover. Now, some commentators um, are happy to gloss over all of this and suggest to us that it's really all the one anointing and that these are expected discrepancies when three different men record the same incident. I have great difficulty with that. When you have something as specific as a time and a date, as it were, two days before the Passover and six days before the Passover, both of them, my friends, cannot be referring to the same incident. And given that this is the inspired word of God, both of them must be correct. Commentators like good old Matthew Henry will uh, suggest, and indeed does more than suggest, that we're talking here about two separate occasions between Matthew and John. Now, it's commonly agreed that uh, Mark was the original um, provider of information for Matthew. But where Matthew and John are concerned, these are two different incidents that took place in the same week. John is recording an event at the beginning of this week of festivities, as the Jews used to call it. The Passover was preceded by the festival of unleavened bread. And both occasions, they run for the entire week. So Mary, evidently, 
that the first part of the anointing, which is what we have here, six days before the Passover, and evidently using only a portion of the ointment. That's why the weight is given to us, a pound of the ointment. Whereas days later, she, we read in Matthew 26, poured, that is, the remainder of the ointment on his head. Now, I'll develop these points a little more shortly. Now, um, this idea of anointing may seem rather alien to our uh, Western and sophisticated minds, something that happened in biblical times. But when you think about it, it's not really alien at all, because anointing by God goes on every moment of every day in the lives of God's people. And those of you who are born-again Christians here this morning, you are being anointed now by the Holy Spirit of God. It's part and partial of being God's people that we are anointed of the Holy Spirit, sometimes anointed more than at other times. But we do have to say that this was a special and a unique and I hasten to add a significant anointing, one that should both challenge us and encourage us. So let's consider the details and explore some of the applications. Let's note, first of all, the location mentioned here. Verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Now, this home of the uh, siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, had become a sanctuary for Jesus in these three years of his public ministry. It was kind of an adopted home for him, and they became something of an adopted family to him. And here we understand that he frequently sought refuge and rest from the pressures of his ministry, knowing that he was in the presence of good friends he could trust. Now, this was possibly the first time he visited Lazarus since he raised the home in Bethany, since he raised Lazarus from the dead. And as we can see, that event gave Bethany, the village or town, fame, if not notoriety. Second part of verse 1, Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Now, that reminds us, my friends, that wherever the power of Jesus Christ is felt, it leaves an indelible mark. Be it a nation, be it a city, be it a town, be it a village, be it a house, be it a family, be it an individual, that power leaves its own mark. Later in the second part of Mary's anointing, we see them gathering, not in this house, but in a different house. We read in Matthew 26, it was the house of Simon the leper. Now, I just don't know why Jesus went to that house on that occasion. 
I, I have no answer to that. And I cannot find an answer in any of the books that I have access to. But it does remind us that sometimes it puzzles us why God chooses one house and not another. One family and not another. One individual and not another. Doesn't that puzzle you? It's always puzzled me ever since I became a Christian. All we know, my friends, is that God is sovereign, totally and altogether sovereign in what he does amongst the sons of men. We are reminded in this, of this in many, many ways, but I'm thinking here of two specific texts, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. In the prophecy of Jeremiah, in chapter 3, we read these words. This is God speaking. I will take you one of a city, two of a family. Romans 9 in the New Testament, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. How are we to respond to that? We say, Amen. He's the potter. We're the clay. He does what seems good in his sight. And who are we to ask, what doest thou? Meanwhile, when Jesus arrived in this home, news obviously spread quickly that he was there. And present on this occasion, we of Jesus himself, we have the 12 disciples, we have Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and who knows how many others. Now, at some stage, Mary took out this box of ointment, described in verse 3 as ointment of spikenard, very costly. And later we're told in the version we have in Matthew 26 that it was held in an alabaster box. Now, remember this is a humble home. These siblings, in the way we measure these things, these siblings would have been low down on the socioeconomic scale. They would have been virtually peasants. Yet we are told here in verse 3 that this ointment was very costly. In Matthew 26, we're told it was <clears throat> very precious. Mark, for his part, adds in Mark 14, its value was 300 pence. Now, in the coinage of that culture 2,000 years ago, that was equivalent to almost a year's wage. Now, where would Mary, by all intents and purposes, who was a peasant woman, where would she have found such a valuable ointment? Did she go out and buy it? Highly unlikely. Did she inherit it, perhaps? Who knows? How long did she possess it? We don't know that either. And there are even more questions. Why did she take it out on this occasion? 
Was this a case of female premonition? Or did she know for sure that the life of her Lord was almost over? Or was it merely what you and I often experience? In other words, aren't there times in the Christian's life when we do things and we are never quite sure why? Isn't that true? For Christians, it's part of being led by the Holy Spirit that we do things, and at the moment, at the minute, it's not altogether clear why we do them, or even say things, and we're not altogether sure why we said what we said. Finding yourselves at the crossroads of decision. We go left, but not right. We do this, but we don't do that. And only time and providence and experience reveals why we did what we did or why we said what we said. Some say that was Mary's experience here. I don't think so. Let me move on to the anointing itself. Verse 3, Mary took a pound of ointment of spike, not very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus. Now, this alabaster box, by the way, was considered the best material to preserve this, anoint, this ointment in. Now, the reason for its value, by the way, was evidently it was imported from India. It was derived from the roots of plants growing in the Himalayan mountains, hence the uh, cost of it being very costly, as it is described in verse 3. And we notice the complaint of Judas Iscariot regarding this, verse 5. Why wasn't it sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? What a contrast between that wicked man's attitude and the attitude of this most gracious of women. He saw no reason why Jesus should be anointed with any kind of ointment, for that matter. But then there was no love in that wicked man's heart for Jesus. No gratitude, no grace. We read in verse 6, he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. In other words, he was a treasurer of the group of disciples and he was stealing regularly something Jesus knew. Just days after this, he left this world neither pardoned nor forgiven and we read in Acts chapter 1 that he went to his own place. That's the end of everyone that dies without God's love and mercy and grace in their hearts and in their lives. They go to their own place. And if you are here this morning, my friend, and you do not believe in Christ as your Savior, you give that serious thought. Meanwhile, Mary shocks everyone in the room by ignoring all the men present. Remember, this is a man's world, very, very masculine place. She draws near to Christ, ignored all of them, and breaks open this alabaster box. Now, at this stage, we note she doesn't empty the box. 
It's as if she carefully measured a portion of the ointment, described for us in verse 3 as a, a pound of the ointment. Now that would suggest to us that all of it wasn't used. In the next part of the anointing, she would use all of it, or the remainder of it, but here only a pound of it was used. And then she pours this ointment, we're told in verse 3, on the feet of Jesus. Now, there are two obvious questions we should ask here. Why just a pound of the ointment? And why only his feet? Remember, as I mentioned, this is the first stage of the anointing. Later, two days before the Passover, as read in Matthew 26, she would reuse the remainder of the ointment. So here, she reckoned this portion, a pound, would suffice. And also here, at the beginning of this week-long festivities, she knew that the mission of her Lord on earth was not quite done. So the anointing of his head, that would be done later, when the shadow of Calvary would be cast over him. Meanwhile, she kneels down and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, I don't think, my friends, there are many, if any, instances in the Bible and even in Christian church history that demonstrates to us such depth of love and gratitude and devotion as we see in the scene before us. Mary didn't care for convention. She seems totally unaware of being surrounded by men. She was, in other words, oblivious to everything and everyone in that room except for her Lord, Jesus Christ. And she realized, my friends, I would suggest to you that his walk on the way of humiliation, was not yet over. He had still some way to go, hence the anointing. I'll say a little more about that in a moment. Let me make an application of this. This intimate moment between this gracious woman and her Savior is hugely instructive both for believers and for those who are seeking the liberty of the gospel, those who are seeking that meaningful relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Why am I stressing this? I'm stressing it because Satan loves, and he's an expert at this, driving a wedge between believers and the Lord. He's an expert at it. He hates anyone who believes in Christ. And if you're a Christian here this morning, take this, my friends, from me, if you don't already appreciate it, Satan hates your guts. No two ways about it. 
And he hates even more those Christians who seek intimate moments with their Lord. And if he can't prevent us believing in him in the first place, he will use every device and every temptation to keep us at a distance from our Lord. We see him being successful in this with that great apostle Peter. Satan drove a wedge between him and Christ when Christ needed him the most. And when these men were pouring the hatred out at Christ, where was Peter? Standing afar off. Satan drove a wedge between them. Now, the reason I am raising this in particular is in connection with those who are found in all our congregations. Those that, of whom we expect the root of the matter to be in their hearts. Those who are loving the Lord Jesus in their own quiet, private way, but who have not the strength to sit at the Lord's table and who have not the strength to profess his name. Every time they think about doing it, the wedge is driven in. And if you fit into this category, you remember this is what's happening. Every time you think about going to the Lord's table and you don't, Satan has been successful in putting that wedge between you and your Savior. Not so this woman. Not so Mary. She is an example here for every believer seeking closeness with Christ. She was oblivious to everyone in that room and everything in that room. She closed in on her Savior, regardless of what others might have thought of her. Let me move on to look at how Jesus interpreted this anointing. Verse 7. Against, this is when they began criticizing her, against the day of my burying has she kept this. Now, going by the value of this spikenard, a pound of it, was really quite a hefty amount if it was only her feet, his feet that she was going to anoint. One imagines that much less would have done for his feet. But so liberally did Mary use this stuff that we are told in verse 3, the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. In other words, although she does the anointing, she owned the ointment, Jesus was the recipient, but everybody was aware of it. Everybody was affected by it. They were all smelling this beautiful fragrance that filled the room. Even the very enemy of Christ, Judas Iscariot. In fact, he went to hell smelling this fragrance. But then, my friends, isn't it true that the fragrance of Christ is in any case filling this world? The world, whether it was openly admitted or not, the world is aware that no man ever spoke like this man. No man ever lived like this man. 
No man ever died like this man. And surely this time of year reminds the world his fragrance still fills the earth 2,000 years after they killed him. Meanwhile, Jesus said, against the day of my burying has she kept this. Now, did you notice exactly what he said? He didn't say, against the day of my burying has she done this. No, he said, has she kept this? You see, he's telling us that she kept this box. Kept it for who knows how long. But you should more than keep it in a corner or in a box or hidden away. The word means to guard carefully. To take great care of. Now here's another question we should be asking at this stage. Why didn't she use this ointment on her own brother? She loved her brother greatly. We know that. And only shortly before this, others wrapped him in grave clothes. We know that. Surely other paraphernalia had been done as well, including uh, uh, anointing him. Others must have anointed him. So why didn't she use this ointment on her brother? Somehow, somehow, Mary knew this alabaster box was destined for something infinitely more glorious than the burial of her brother. And Jesus confirms that to us, doesn't he? Against the day of my burying, she kept this. She didn't use it on her brother. She kept it for me. This woman knew that time was running out for our Lord. She knew that Jesus would have to die and would have to die for her to save her. So notice again, he didn't say against the day of my death. He said against the day of my burial. So by referring to his burial, it's clear that Mary understood he had to die. No two ways about it. She didn't think that an angel would be sent to heaven to to deliver him and cart him away to glory. None of his disciples believed that, that he was going to die. He spoke of it plainly enough on more than one occasion, but they just could not grasp it. But this woman did. And she grasped it with conviction, if not with clarity. There's something else we should notice here. Now, I stand to be corrected in this. Mary was a little bit like yourself. She was a silent type. Most of you are, when it comes to spiritual things, you're in that category, aren't you? You don't speak forthrightly about theology and about the death of Christ and things like that. No question, you believe it all, but 
Most people are in that category to some degree or other. And this is what I stand to be corrected in. I cannot recall a single word this woman uttered in this life that is recorded other than the comment she made when her brother died. And then she just repeated her sister. Lord, if thou hast been here, my, my, my brother had not died. I can't think of another word that she spoke that's recorded. But she made up for that, my friends. She made up for that. How? By being what you must be, a good listener. Luke 10, verse 39. She, referring to Mary, she sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. She was a good listener. Now, my friend, you may be afraid to go out in that street to witness for Christ, but you make sure of that. Make sure you're a good listener when Christ speaks to you through his word. And that was the difference, I suppose, between Mary and the disciples. She heard and believed every word that came from his blessed mouth. Ah, little wonder, my friends, that Jesus claimed at the second part of the anointing in Matthew 26. Wherever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told for a memorial of her. Here we are, fulfilling that prophecy. We're talking about it 2,000 years later. But what exactly are we to note here? What exactly are we, to, are we to remember in this memorial? You see, others did memorable things to honor Christ. The disciples, for example, some of them abandoned their livelihood to follow him. But there must be things of outstanding quality for Jesus to make this a memorial to Mary's actions. There must be outstanding things here. Let me suggest four things to you in the last part of this sermon. The first thing we should notice is our faith. The faith that saw more than the great apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. The faith that saw beyond what any of his disciples saw. She knew that Jesus had to die. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. And that's what true faith does, my friends. It is the evidence of things not seen. She was seeing beyond the things of time and sense. Do you have that faith, my friends? Do you have a faith that is greater, the faith in Jesus Christ, greater than the faith you have in your doctor? The greater the faith you have in your dentist, the faith that is greater than you have in anybody on this earth. Do you have that faith? We are to notice the extent of our faith. 
The second thing we are to notice as a memorial for her is her unremitting love. This is seen in every instance of this woman's testimony, but especially here. Surrounded mostly by men, unashamedly and with holy boldness, she falls to her knees and begins to anoint the feet of her beloved Lord. Now, my friend, do you have that kind of unremitting love for your Savior? Are you unashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you afraid to profess his name in the presence of the world and of men. It's easy enough to profess his name in the presence of other Christians, but can you do it in the face of the world without fear or favor? I love the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. The third thing we are to notice in this memorial is the focus of her mind in this anointing. His feet. His feet. Remember, as I said, this is part one of the anointing. Wouldn't you have expected in part one of the anointing that she would have begun with his head? Isn't that what we would expect? She didn't. She began with his feet. Now that suggests something to me, my friends. It suggests to me that this highly spiritual woman was thinking of a nominous messianic prophecy from the Old Testament. Specifically, Genesis 3.15. That Satan would bruise, what? Not his head, his heel. The Messiah's heel, the heel of his foot. Shortly after this, in the Garden of Gethsemane, God dispensed an angel when he saw the severe strain that Christ was under, with his blood falling, his sweat falling like blood to the ground, an angel was dispensed to encourage Christ. To encourage him in what? To finish the work of redemption. Here's Mary doing exactly the same thing. She's anointing the feet that must carry him all the way to Calvary. We are to notice the focus of our mind. And finally, we are to notice in this memorial the sheer depth of our compassion. That's evident in Genverse 3, wiping his feet with her Hair. Now remember, this is in our own house. There would have been plenty of towels available to her had she wished to dry his feet. But you see, to Mary, a towel would have seemed out of place here. 
Er hat sie eben unklein. So sie lädt er her voll on her Savior's feet and she used it as a tower. What a magnificent sin that is set before us. Now, dare we suggest that this so touched our Lord, what he was witnessing this woman doing, so touched him that he followed her example. Days later, what do we find him doing? Chapter 13, verse 5, wiping the feet of his disciples. What an incredible woman. And what an example for all Christians. Let it be known, my friends, amongst others. Let it be recorded in heaven that we also have a memorial. Oh, yes, much less glorious than this one, but nevertheless a memorial to the demonstrative way that we are willing to show our love to our blessed Savior. God tells us that there's a book of remembrance written in heaven. Now, do you wonder what is being recorded in that book regarding yourself? Oh, few of us will match this woman, this most gracious of women. But all of us who claim to be born again Christians, we must pray to have this unremitted love for our Savior. And we must seek and pray that this will be recorded in God's book of remembrance. So let's aim high, my friends. Let's ensure that God does record our Christian faith, our Christian love, our Christian compassion. But also that he records that this is the primary focus of our minds. Whatever we are going through at any given time, whatever trauma, whatever trouble, whatever joy, this is the primary focus of our minds, being filled with the Lord Jesus Christ and thoughts and desires after him. Is that going to be written in God's book of remembrance regarding yourself? That you lived and died like this woman, Mary, a dedicated believer in Jesus Christ. Or will that book of remembrance record that you have refused every opportunity of gospel salvation? Oh, my unconverted friend, before you close your eyes at the end of this Sabbath day, offer to God that great prayer. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Let us pray. Gracious and blessed God,
enable us to be truly challenged this morning by thy word and by the actions of this most gracious of women and help us to understand and appreciate that what is required of us is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to be firmly focused on the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. We may have other, many other faults and failings as we stagger and stumble our way through life, but let this be said of us, that we lived and that we shall die, dedicated believers in Christ. Amen.